Blog Talk Radio. Sunday, everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of Cinema Noir. This is Kimberly Renee, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Rebecca and Candace. Happy Sunday, ladies. Happy hey, Sunday. happy Sunday. I know we were talking earlier. It seems like it's been so long. I, <laughs> I know. <laughs> but we are back. Uh, we have a good show planned for you today. Uh, we're going to be talking about season two of Daredevil and the Asian representation in the, the season of the series that premiered on Netflix. I think last, was it, did it drop this Friday or was it last week that it dropped? Um, last week? Oh last God. week, okay. okay. A couple weeks ago. Uh, we're also going to be talking about the movie um, Superman versus Batman and some of the issues with that film and film critics and the role that they play and whether or not people, you know, go see these films. And we're also going to be talking about the casting of a casting notice that went out about the hit show Hamilton on Broadway and some controversy about that. Uh, but first, we'll start with some news. Um, it was announced this week that Kevin Hart and Brian Cranston are going to be starring in the um, American remake of the French film The Untouchables, which was, I think, a huge hit over there. Um, and now they're mm-hmm. remaking it here. Um, I know. Did you go see the original version of the film? Yeah. Um, I saw it a, a couple of years ago. Oh, I know. Yeah. Got some words. So I thought it was Darth Omar C. And so when they announced that Kevin Hart was going to be in it, I kind of thought it was like an April Fool's type deal, but <laughs> I don't think it is. It's a real deal. Um, so what do you two think about the casting of, of those two in this film? Um, uh, Brian Cranston, I can kind of see him as that. Um, Kevin Hart, I don't know if he's going to Kevin Hartify it. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> just you mean, I say that to mean that he's really amped all the time and he's like really on like level 900. Um, and I, and I, and I'm, I'm actually a Kevin Hart fan, but he is on level 900 and I forget the character's name, but the character is really not like that. <laughs> so I don't know right. how, you know, because U.S. US remakes tend to um, dumb down certain content to please U.S. audiences, essentially just discrediting, discrediting the intelligence of U.S. audiences. We do that all the time. <laughs> I don't know whether he's going to, you know, do his regular shtick. Maybe he will. Maybe he'll give us a brand new Kevin Hart. Um, but I will say that I was not a fan of the the original Untouchables, so I don't really have a dog in the fight, but that's a really strange pairing to me. Yeah, I know. I saw the original, and I mean, I guess it's a comedy. I don't remember laughing that much, 
But like I <laughs> said, I've never seen Kevin Hart not be Kevin Hart at like ten thousand. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. him playing that role is kind of strange. Like it mm-hmm. just doesn't match up to me either. Yeah. So. Yeah, but Bernie Cranston, I mean, he's great, so maybe that'll work for him. But depending on how they switch it up. Mm. Yeah. I don't know why there is a remake, but I think we talked about that before. Um, <laughs> just, you know, I have met enough audi- like American audiences who refuse to watch foreign film because they don't want to read it. Um, so they don't want to read the subtitles. <laughs> and they're, like, confident saying this, like, out loud. So, right. you know, be blessed. Yeah. Oh, That's man. funny. It's actually kind of sad. It's actually very sad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like reading a fundamental people. Okay. It, it is. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah. yeah, I um, I mean, I saw the original one, and I I thought it was cool. You know what I mean? I think, and I think we had um, um, Omar Moore. This was a, a few years ago. We had him on the podcast talking about the untouchables, and, and I know that there were – some, there was some pushback against the original Untouchables as far as like the race and the 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 class dynamics in the movie. There were people who found it problematic. So I don't mm-hmm. know if the U.S. remake is going to address that. You know what I mean? Um, because mm-hmm. I know with the you know the French version of the Untouchables, you know the the way they think about race in France is not the way that we think about race here. Um, and so I'm just wondering, you know, if they if they are going to update it, and or if they're going to update it, if they're going to make it here, you know, are these things going to be addressed? Because you basically have a black man who's kind of the caretaker of a rich white dude. Like I don't mm-hmm. <laughs> already mm-hmm. that's already reading wonky to a lot of people. And so mm-hmm. you know, I, I I know that Paul Feig, uh, Paul Feig is is writing the the script for this remake. Um, he's the one who wrote, um, Paul Feig is the one who wrote uh, the, the Ghostbusters, the upcoming mm-hmm. the all-girl cast. Um, and I actually saw Spy uh, last week, the one with Melissa McCarthy, which Paul Feig wrote as well. And I thought Spy was hilarious. I loved how mm-hmm. Paul Feig was able to take, you know, our expectations of what a woman who looked like Melissa McCarthy would look like, you know what I mean, and mm-hmm. made her into like this super spy, which usually never happens, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think the, 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 the script of Spy was very self-aware and very knowing mm-hmm. about this, you know what I mean? Like how they would, like, make, like I think there was a, a part where um, they called her the lunch lady or whatever because mm-hmm. of the fact mm-hmm. that she doesn't look like this skinny type spy. Mm-hmm. So I thought they did a really great job of, like, turning the trope on its head. So I'm hoping that with this Untouchables remake, if you are going to set up the same race, and class dynamics, you're going to have to address it. You know what I mean? Like, there's going to have to be some dialogue between Kevin Hart and Brian Cranston about their situations or their stations. And, like, um, you know, I don't know. Kevin Hart, you know, for the most part, his performances have pretty much been the same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Kevin Hart of five. Kevin Hart aside, like you said, so I'm hoping <laughs> that maybe this will be a challenge for him to maybe um, give us something different. And, and the, the only time when I kind of did see something different from Kevin Hart was he, he wasn't in this movie a long time, but um, Top 5 with Chris 
Rock. Uh, I yeah. think he played Chris Rock's agent. And I thought mm-hmm. he was hilarious. He wasn't. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I feel mm-hmm. like if he could do that for the Untouchables, like, it, it could be cool. I will say this, though. I thought that if they were going to make an Untouchables remake, if they really wanted it to make a difference, why not switch the why not switch the race of the characters, right? Now, mm-hmm. you could have had a remake where you could have had, instead of Brian Cranston, why not use Morgan Freeman? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then find mm-hmm. a younger white actor to play his caretaker. That would mm-hmm. be interesting to me. Yeah. That would have been interesting to me, and I think more people would watch that. Just my personal opinion. So, Yeah. Yeah. Um, I again, I, I did not find the original at all interesting. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, it can only go up from there. But um, I just thought that was definitely strange, strange casting. Very. <laughs> yeah. Well, like I said, I don't remember the first one being a comedy for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> But whatever. They um, they always described <laughs> it as one, and I was just like, oh, okay. That's it. Oh, okay. So it wasn't just me. <laughs> so maybe we got mm-hmm. lost in translation there. Yeah, nope. I didn't quite get that. But oh well. Mm-hmm. But we'll see how this turns out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess cautiously optimistic, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> uh, moving on. Uh, this week, I know there was a lot of buzz on Twitter because of a Kathleen Hamilton that went out on the open casting call where they were seeking non-white men and women between ages of 20 and 30 for um, the upcoming Broadway show um, and the touring show. And group actors' equity um, had a lot of issue with the fact that they used the term non-white and felt that it was discriminatory and, you know, caused a lot of ruckus online about how, you know, this, this basically the, the producers of the show were discriminating against white actors like if they wanted to be in Hamilton or wanted to audition for Hamilton. So um, I guess, what do you all think about the, the controversy? Because I feel like it's pretty much known that whether you've seen Hamilton or not, you've heard about it, and you know that the whole thing is that they have, you know, these black and Latino actors playing the founding fathers who were white. Um, so the, the fact that they're making such a big deal of this, I think, is kind of crazy. But what, what do you think about it? Um, I think it's bullshit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Utter and total bullshit. Because I'm just looking at this lawyer like, okay, I mean, listen, I don't, I'm not really good with the legal technicalities. I'm, I'm hearing that there's some sort of, um, um, you know, there's law where you can't, specifically say when you're putting a casting notice or a job notice, you can't say that, you know, you can't specify the, the, the race or the preference of a race for a job opening. But I feel like for this specific, for this particular lawyer that brought this up, I just kind of feel like, okay, of all the plays and all the properties that you have a problem with, the most diverse show that's on Broadway, this is the show you, like, this is the hill you want to die on, Hamilton? You know what I mean? Like, like that just didn't even make any sense to me because what was great about it is that there were a lot of actors and actresses who, you know, who work and live in New York that were taking screen captures, okay, from websites that had casting notices and they were all white, 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 white. <laughs> I think one was, it was a casting call for hairspray 
all the leads in Hairspray, they, they were specifically asking for Caucasian leads between the age of 18 and 25. Why were you not trying to, you know, chase after those guys? Um, and number two, I mean, let's be clear about Hamilton. Hamilton does have white cast members. Mm-hmm. Right? Just just this week, um, the actor who plays King George, Jonathan Groff, is stepping down, and they just recast him with another white actor, Wario O'Malley. So perhaps maybe you should have done your homework <laughs> before. <laughs> and not to mention mm-hmm. the fact that, let's be clear, one of the reasons why, and of course, I haven't seen Hamilton yet, but I, I have the soundtrack and just all, you know, the performances I have seen online. One of the reasons why Hamilton worked is that Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote and created this play, who was Puerto Rican and a New Yorker, he was very specific and deliberate in casting non-white actors in these traditional white roles, right? He plays Alexander Hamilton. The guy who plays Aaron Burr is black. Um, you know, the three sisters are black and Latina, right? So what he's doing mm-hmm. is he's subverting American history, right, purposely. There's a point to Hamilton, and there's a specific point as to why King George is white, right? Because white mm-hmm. George, King George basically represents white supremacy. It wouldn't work with an actor of color, <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So, you mm-hmm. know, and I think that's part of the reason why Hamilton works. And that's why it is probably one of the most successful plays in Broadway ever. And I am just feeling like this is a case of sour grapes, right? Like you see a show with non-white people that it, President Obama has seen this play at least twice. You know what I mean? The celebrities are like killing each other to try to see this play. And this is the play that you have a problem with. No, mm-hmm. that just, it doesn't work that way. Like we're fighting a fight not just in Broadway but in Hollywood where, you know, actors of colors don't get these opportunities. They just don't, mm-hmm. you know, not, not for anything that's successful. So I feel like, okay, if you have a problem with Hamilton, why are you not here fighting? The, where were you during Oscar So White? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, why are you showing mm-hmm. up, like, just late, party to the party, and then nothing to contribute? That's like, no, you came to the dinner party and you brought ice cream. <laughs> no, like, goodbye. I, I, I don't have anything. You have nothing to contribute. You have nothing to contribute. Yeah. And, and I just hope that the producers of Hamilton – um, hold the line and hire more people of color. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I'm just so flabbergasted. I'm just like, you know, basically echoing everything you already said, Rebecca, but I'm just like, mm-hmm. where were they when, um, what's that movie? Straight out of Compton had their casting notice. Where were they when all those years and years and years and it still continues to be perpetuated that there are casting calls that are for white American actors? Where are they for all this other stuff? Where are they when we're talking about representation all the time? Mm-hmm. Our, when we talk about, when I, when I say we, I mean when people of color talk about diversity, we're including white people. When white people talk about diversity, they're including, I mean, they're just talking about people of color, which, again, excludes, the, I mean, just really um, defeats the whole purpose of, of, of diversity. And it's such a disconnect. And they, white people, mainstream critics, people like that do not like to be um, excluded from anything because white people want to take everything. <laughs> they think that every conversation is about them, 
every conversation, they deserve an opinion about every job is theirs. Everything is theirs. They do not like the idea of exclusion. I'm just like, well, welcome to being an, a minority for 365 days of the year. That is Thank what you. we deal with all the time. Right. So, so we we just don't want you in this one particular cat one particular cat um, aspect of Hamilton. We're not denying you jobs. We're not denying you, you know, food. We're not denying you education because we can have that conversation if you want to really talk about representation, representation and inclusion. We can have that conversation. Hello. But this one, this one aspect of life, you're pissed mm-hmm. off about. All right, cool. Sit down. <laughs> I've never heard Candace so salty before. <laughs> it's just it's just so like what are you talking about? You don't have a like this is not your fight. This is not your fight. Right. Yeah, it's crazy because it's like, okay, this one show, you know, about, you know, the history of America where whiteness is not front and center and people are or not even people, this dude is losing his mind, like seriously. <laughs> and his whole issue is just with you know, that one line speaking non-white, that's it. And, like, that, right. that whole thing, that whole, this whole, you know, issue is about that one one word. I was like, seriously, it's just crazy. But um, <laughs> the producers, they did, you know, release a statement, and they said that, um, let me find it. Um, we regret the confusion that has arisen from the recent posting of an open casting notice for this show but also that it is essential to the storytelling of Hamilton that the principal roles, which were written for non-white characters, excluding King George, be performed by non-white actors. Uh, so they took, <laughs> they did change it. So on the, the casting call it says, you know, all ethnicities are welcome to audition, but if you look at the character breakdowns, each one says mm-hmm. non-white, 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 <laughs> except for King George. Mm-hmm. So I love it. It's like, you know what, we'll give you what you want, but you're not going to change what this is, what its intent is, and how we're going to run the show. So, like, chill, dude. I love it. And, and can I just point out that the word non-white is actually the most inclusive word that you can use? Because non-white doesn't just, it means black, it means Latino, it means Native American, it means Asian, Mm -hmm. it means biracial, it means Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the way the world actually looks, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And like Candace said, it's like, you don't need to be part of everything. Like, and I I was Mm -hmm. tweeting that on Wednesday when I was reading the story, it was like, you know, you've got these, and I have to keep reminding people this, particularly in Hollywood, right? I don't know what the exact... um, um, statistics are for for Broadway, but I'm sure they're similar. In Hollywood, right, we talk about the, 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 the reports that come out for diversity every year, right? Almost 70% of leading and, and talking roles go to white men. 70%. 70% oh of them gosh. go to white men. And mm-hmm. if you look at the U.S. Census, white men are only about a third of the U.S. population. They're like 30 oh to 32% of the population. So we're talking about an over- representation. So your overrepresented, overprivileged ass has nothing to say. Okay? No. Like almost every mm. week I'm going to the movies and I gotta hear about y'all and look at y'all and no. Like for one, mm. I would just like to see people of color front and center. I'd like to see women front and center. Like take a seat, white men. Like, you know, it's good. Mm. Like I, I just really don't need to hear from y'all right now. That's that's how I feel. That's <laughs> there is no 
there is no rage like white male rage. I'm telling you, they do not. <laughs> they do not like to be excluded. They're like, oh my gosh, I run the entire world. I get to make all the decisions. I even trump all the women. I do everything, but I can't get into mm-hmm. Hamilton, dude. <laughs> it's so crazy because it's like it's not that serious. Like, calm down. Like, this is one <laughs> show. Yes, it's the most popular show in the world right now, and everybody wants to be part of it, but it's one show. Like, there are a million other shows where there are no black mm-hmm. people. None. And no, no one has a problem. You know, there's no issue and, there. There's no press conference or calling all this attention to it. Right. Like, what about all, of, like, the movies and TV shows and other Broadway shows that may not say no black people allowed or no people of color allowed, but it's implied. It's right. implied. Yes. You know that you don't have that because they they haven't come out and said it because they don't need to say it. We are, we already know where where we're being excluded from without the actual words, no POCs here. Mm-hmm. Right. But I do appreciate the producers sticking to their guns and, you know, holding true to what they intended to do with this show, regardless of the haters. And technically the hoodie is he's a hater. Like, you're being a hater mm-hmm. for no reason. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> moving on. Uh, Daredevil, which we were talking about earlier, premiered on Netflix, and I know – um, Rebecca, you had some issues with the Asian representations that were going on on this series. So I'm going to turn this one over to you because I'm one of the few people who does not watch Daredevil. <laughs> so. um, yeah. Um, it, it's been interesting to see the conversation that's been surrounding Daredevil because I, and I'm just going to preface this by saying that I am a fan of Daredevil. I love the first season. Um, I'm like two-thirds, like halfway, like maybe into episode seven, into the second season. And I am just loving John Berthal as the Punisher, Frank Castle. He is just the truth. And I, any episode, anything he's not in, I'm already immediately sad. But um, for all the things that I think that Daredevil does right, I think there's definitely a conversation that needs to be had about how Asians, and Asian Americans are portrayed in Daredevil. Um, now, I admit I saw the first season. I had my critiques of, of it, um, and it wasn't until I had conversations with other uh, Asian writers and other Asian American writers that really opened my eyes to take another look at Daredevil. Um, and I didn't realize that in Daredevil season one, all the Asian people on that show were evil. <laughs> they were evil. Nobu was a villain. Madame Gao was a villain. So you were either it was either like you were either a villain or you were silent and helpless, right? Like the people that worked in the in the factory that were making the drugs for Madame Gao. There were no to my knowledge, I don't know that there were like any speaking parts for like any non evil Asian people on the show. Um and th- there mm-hmm. definitely is like an orient but I guess it's Orientalism that surrounds Daredevil, um, which I think in the year 2016 is ridiculous because if you live in New York, it's a very diverse city. We have all ethnicities represented, whether you're, you know, you're an immigrant or first generation or second or third generation. Um, Yeah, the representation of Asian people was not great. Um, Going into the second season, 
it's worse. (laughs) (laughs) It's not getting better. Um, And uh, Arthur Chu um, wrote an excellent uh, takedown or deconstruction of Asian representation of Daredevil for the Daily Beast. I'm gonna. I'll tweet it out and 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 add some in line the mentions. But yeah, I mean, and and I think I, I think what's been really um, exciting for me is seeing uh, people of the Asian American community that are really like you know rising up, not just with Daredevil, but with what happened with the Oscars and um, you know what's going on with Rush Hour. They're really like we've had enough. Like we are, we refuse mm. to be the butt of your jokes. Like we're either in, either Asian men are either. Uh, the butt of jokes, right? They're either like the the super nerdy guy, they're the takeout Chinese guy, they're the evil mm-hmm. corporate um, villain <laughs> trying to take mm-hmm. over your company. You know what I mean? Like there's just no, there's hardly any balance. I think, you know, for now, all we've got is uh, Steven Yoon on uh, The Walking Dead. Glenn is, is, is a great character. Um, Into the Badlands, we had um, Daniel Wu. Um, who was the lead and the hero of the show, but these representations are kind of like few and far between. Um, and I just feel like we we just need to do better. I think Daredevil definitely needs to do better. I mean, Elodie Young, yes, Elodie Young's character because uh, of the show has been race bent uh, because the actress is Cambodian. I think she's half Asian, half French. Um, so that was a that was a win in one department, but I don't feel that that was enough to balance the ninjas <laughs> that were flying around. You know what I mean? I was just like, no, guys, this is this isn't cool. So yeah, um, I just found that very interesting. Um, we have our caller on the line too, Rebecca. Yay! Hi, Sean. Hello. <laughs> How are you? Hey. Can you hear me okay? Everything good? Yes, we can hear you. All right. So this is amazing. And first of all, thanks so much for, for having me here. Um, You're welcome. <laughs> I, I, uh, yeah, this is, uh, sorry, I'm a little, I'm a little, uh, my brain's all scrambled. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> so I am, my name is Sean Lau. I am on a uh, podcast called No Totally. Uh, we talk about movies and social issues. And, um yeah, I'm super, super excited to be here. Um, and I could talk for hours about Asian res- representation, <laughs> as I do on Twitter constantly. Um, mm-hmm. What did you want to hear about? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, what do you? I mean, I just kind of gave my opinion of Daredevil, but I would love to hear from you what you thought about the represent the Asian representation of both seasons of Daredevil. Sure, absolutely. Um, I'm actually going to concentrate more on season two. It's you know, it's. Um, mm-hmm pressure on my mind, but also, as you mentioned, the Arthur Chu piece that came out on the Daily Beast is amazing. So, you know, if anybody gets a chance, if they haven't read it, should definitely read it. Um, Something else that you pointed out, too, with the Asian community kind of rising up a little bit and uh, not accepting the crap anymore, um, I just wanted to kind of point out that that kind of did, did definitely, as you mentioned, start a little bit more around Oscar's so white, but I kind of want to point out just because I know that, that the relationship between the, the black and Asian American communities can be very fraught at times, you know, given the mm-hmm. co- the kind of model minority status of Asian Americans versus the, what, what happens in the black community. Um, mm-hmm. I just, I like, I think it's really, really important to kind of move the conversation away from the Oscar's so white movement, because let's be honest, a, a lot of Asian Americans out there, 
were only comfortable saying stuff when Chris Rock was the face of the uh, the Asian racism that they were perceiving. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, that the Asian-American community, unfortunately, is not it, – it's basically the opposite of immune to anti-blackness, you know, uh, like I said, given the model minority stuff. So I really appreciate, you know, shows like this kind of moving away from that, mm-hmm. just the awesome controversy and being like, look – given the relationship, given how broad it is, there can be those divisions, but, you know, continuing to talk about it afterwards, I think is, is really important. So I definitely mm-hmm. appreciate all of you for that. Um, Daredevil, uh, as already mentioned, yeah, uh, Elodie Young is amazing. Uh, she's a really great actress in the show, but um, the, the character is trash, right? Uh, like, one thing that I tweeted while I was watching the show, I think it was the first appearance of Elektra, is that she she seems to exist in every single Asian female stereotype that there is, um, except for the submissive part, which they're just mm-hmm. replaced with completely evil and bloodthirsty. Um, mm-hmm. And I, on Twitter, I said, "Hooray, racism over!" Um, you know, it's, <laughs> it's hard because you, you're not surprised by this kind of stuff anymore. That there is, and you see this with women on film. You see this. Uh, with black people on film and on TV that they figure if they just take one aspect of a stereotype and subvert it just a little bit, that all of a sudden now we should be standing up and cheering. Um, But I think we're way beyond that point. Wouldn't you agree? You would think. (laughs) (laughs) I like to think. Yeah. It's, and the thing that, that really frustrates me and I'm sorry, I'm, I can give more examples from Daredevil two or Daredevil season two specifically, but I kind of what's really killing me about the fact that this is happening in the Marvel cinematic and Marvel Netflix TV universe is that the nerd culture that supports all this stuff is so naturally incredibly diverse, right? Like it's mm-hmm. in my opinion, it's the facet of mainstream culture that's the most naturally diverse in terms of following. Um, like uh, it's hard to believe that Marvel decision makers and and those who surround them, you know, people that ostensibly go to big cons and see people of every ethnicity cosplaying and, and uh, losing their minds over every tiny announcement. It's hard to believe that the decision makers don't see all of that, right? And going even a step further into the kind of creation of all this stuff, characters like the Hulk are clearly expressions of societal misfits. You know, Marvel's got this, mm. this long history of these characters that are kind of born out of these struggles, um, so those kinds of attributes play a huge role, not only in their creation, but their popularity. So it's already been proven that comic books as an art form speak to the underrepresented in a way that no other popular culture really does, right? So the idea that the MCU and the Netflix TV world are adaptations of source material, you know, source material that strikes a chord over and over again with those of us who, uh, like Spider-Man, would find it incredibly hard to cope with this all-consuming sense of responsibility along with everything that you already have to deal with in high school, right, which is hell for most people. Um, Mm -hmm. As long as the stories are already kind of changing and going from the page to the screen, it, it doesn't seem, uh, it it just doesn't seem like it fits with the whole arc of what they're doing um, to acknowledge, not to acknowledge what's going on in America right now with the retellings. Um, and it's not like every single occurrence on the screen uh, has been canon, right? Like, and I'm kind of going directly at the Asian American Iron Fist controversy. Right. Um, Tony Stark didn't make Ultron in the comics, and that's actually one of my big pet peeves because 
the Hank Pym mm-hmm. story of creating Ultron, I thought was far more interesting than kind of just mm-hmm. like, you know, shoehorning it into the Age of Ultron line. Um, so just kind of comics overall as a really important kind of cultural touchstone for so many people right now, uh, it just doesn't, this kind of stuff doesn't make sense to me. Um, I think superheroes, the the popularity of superheroes right now, you know, um, it's those worlds are reflective of our worlds, which can often be really horrifying, right? You look at what's going on in politics, what's going on in the news internationally. Um, and so these stories owe a lot of their popularity to the urge for us, you know, people like us who can't really do that much more than just sit in front of the news and be anxious. Um, the popularity owes a lot to our desire to see some kind of justice prevail, even if it's just fantasy. So if you're creating worlds where everything is solved, at the end of the day, the bad guy is defeated, and in these worlds you're continuing to portray people of color as something less than human, it tells everybody that the ideal world, you know, the world in which justice and hope is possible, it tells everybody that in that world, uh, people of color are nothing but obstacles or punchlines, and that kind of dehumanization is something that, that we, the, the diverse nerds that I mentioned earlier, um, Asian, black, and especially white, to be honest, right? We should not be willing to accept any of that. And so just from, you know, I'm sorry, I kind of went off there, but just from a philosophical standpoint, things like Daredevil, things like the first appearance of a, an Asian man with a speaking role on Daredevil in season two has a, a super thick stereotypical Asian accent, and he makes some kind of joke about how Elektra must be incompetent because she's a woman. Uh, that's the very first time you see an Asian man speak on, on that show. And like I said, in this world where we're all kind of looking up to our superheroes because they can actually do things and they can, they can have an effect on the world around them, to see that kind of stuff on that kind of TV show um, or that kind of movie, anything, really, it, it tells people of color that they're not worthy and it tells, you know, white people that uh, it, it indicates how we should be treated or how we should be listened to or, you know, everything that you've already been saying with Hamilton and then everything else. Um, but yeah, <laughs> what the, hopefully that wasn't too confusing or, or uh, roundabout. No, not at all. I, um, it, you know, it was funny too, because I, I've been watching um, Daredevil and this discussion has been going on. Um, I happened to watch, and I don't, I don't know if you ladies saw it too. I saw the, the, uh, the series premieres of Rush Hour on CBS. So they took the Rush Hour franchise and adapted it into a TV show. Um, and I was watching it like, I can't believe this show is happening in 2016. I'll be the first, I'll be the first one to admit. I'll be the first one to admit that I did. I don't count the third rush hour. That didn't happen. Um, <laughs> rush hour one and two. I actually enjoyed the movies. I I thought they were very funny. But mm-hmm. as time has gone on, I really I see rush hour for what it was. The rush hour movies for what it was. It was really like just an outrageous, um, you know, contest of racial tropes, right? Yeah. However many Asian tropes they could find for Jackie Chan, they found yeah. it. However many black tropes they could find for Chris Tucker, they found that. You know what I mean? And so now when I watch Rush Hour, it's just really both side-eyed. And so, you know, to adapt it to a TV show, 
it just kind of follows them because Brett Ratner, who's the director of, of the, the franchise, is also an executive producer on the show. And so let's be clear. I just want to make it clear that this is nothing against the actors in the role. I'm taking to task the writers and the producers and the decision makers of the show. Um, in the first place, the Jackie Chan character, Detective Lee, right? If you look at the IMDb or if you look at anything, he has no first name. He's just Detective Lee. You know what I mean? And I was just like, and I watched the whole episode. I kept waiting for them to call him by his first name. You never got it. You never got the first name. Um, And then there was this one scene which made me really uncomfortable where um, Carter, right, the the, the Detective Carter is talking to Detective Lee, and then he says to Detective Lee, he was like, oh, yeah, he was like, are you a robot? I'm confused you're a Chinese robot from the TV Sort of, you know, as, as, and this is sort of like him talking about the fact that Detective Lee has apparently no emotions. And I'm sure people are like, oh, it's no big deal. It's just a joke. Ha, ha, ha. No, it's not a joke. Not to me. Mm-hmm. I didn't find it funny. You know what I mean? Because they did kind of write his character to be very flat and efficient and emotionless. And this is a trope that we see about Asian people time after time after time. And it's just, I just feel like in 2016, like, we should be moving away from that. But, you know, Sean and I have had a lot of discussion about this. I think a lot of this is due to the fact that um, there's no Asian, they don't have Asian or Asian American writers or decision makers to counter these tropes, right? Like, there's no Mm -hmm. one in the writer's room to say, oh, a a joke about a Chinese robot, we probably shouldn't go in that direction. Nobody's there to check them. You know, I also don't think that they are taking it. I don't for any anything that, you know, any TV show, Broadway show, movie. I don't think that the writers or whoever the decision makers ever take into consideration that, hey, I don't think just white men are going to watch this. Like they don't even Mm -hmm. consider that as a concept. So they don't factor that in in their, you know, analysis of what could possibly be a trope or um, negative stereotype or what have you. I just don't think that they are, I think that they think that, you know, black audiences are just watching black shows, just watching mm-hmm. black movies. And so they think that they can just skirt around issues and no one would notice. And that's also belittling your audience. You know, your audience is, doesn't just consist of white men. No matter what genre it is, there's always somebody watching it. And then you, should, you as a, again, a decision maker, should also just have that sensitivity already built, you know, as a writer of, um, you know, of a, a writer of a show or a movie that is going to be public, which means that not only white people will see it. So. Right. I think, uh, you know, talking about decision makers and talking about writers, you look at someone like Alan Yang, who is the co-creator of Master of None with Aziz Ansari, and he was a writer on Parks and Recreation, which, let's be honest, that's one of the most white shows ever to exist, right? Uh, (laughs) They they had kind of the token token characters uh, of color, but thematically and all that, that's made for white people, and that's fine. I thought that show was hilarious. Alan Yang was a writer in that in that room. And so how how did parks and rec, you know, get to do that many seasons? And they, I can't remember a single offensive incident. You know, they say everything is problematic if you look deep enough. Right. So I'm sure that there was something that I maybe overlooked, but I, I never saw them really playing, you know, up the, the Asian stereotypes or any other stereotypes really. And so just having that one guy in the room makes that much of a difference. And guess what? Your jokes are better. 
your the DVDs okay. are going to sell better because in the year 2020, it's not going to be a, a racist shit show like other ones are going to be, right? Mm-hmm. So it just yeah. kind of like yeah, like like you're saying, having the decision makers in there, having the writers in there, I you know, talking about the cycle of stereotypes and everything. If you're going to call uh, uh, Detective Lee on Rush Hour a robot, that that mm-hmm. goes with that stereotype that Asian people are not funny, that they're ruthlessly logical. Uh, and mm-hmm. so how are, are you going to imagine uh, for Rush Hour them hiring an Asian writer in there when all the writers already believe that Asian people are not funny? Uh, it mm-hmm. doesn't seem likely to me, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I That's think people true. are forgetting, too, that, that, that writers, while they are, you know, you have really great writers and they're smart, they're still walking in with biases. And that's yeah. what happens when you don't when you don't have a diverse writers room or an inclusive writers room. You need that inclusiveness to to balance and check things, right? Like you need men, you need women, you need people of color, women or men. You also and then you need the age diversity, right? And then whether um, uh, sexual orientation, right? You need um, LGBT writers. Like you, you just need that because they just you everybody has a blind spot. Right, I'm mm-hmm. a, I'm a black I'm a black woman, right? Okay, but I still have a certain amount of privilege, right? I'm able-bodied, mm-hmm. which gives me a certain the the education that I have gives me a certain other kind of privilege. So I can't even sit there and think just because I'm black and a, and I'm a woman that I'm immune of biases or bigotry, right? Yeah. So maybe if I'm thinking something about a disabled character, right? Maybe there's somebody in that room who's disabled that'll be like, hey, Rebecca, you know what? That actually doesn't work. As somebody who who lives as a person who is disabled, maybe you're a little wrong-headed in your thinking, and in which case I can't be defensive and be like, "Well, I'm a black woman. You can't tell me, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. that yeah. I I know everything about being disabled because um, I'm black and a woman." No, like it, it you know, marginalization mm-hmm. takes all different shades. Um, privilege takes different shapes too, and yeah, like we need each other. And I just feel like you can just tell with Rush Hour that it's so. White. Maybe they have people of color. I don't know. I seriously doubt that they have Asian writers in there. If, if there's an Asian writer on Rush Hour, please hit me up on Twitter because I've got questions for you. Um, <laughs> but I didn't see it. I did not see that in the writing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's such a hard thing because, like, especially in comedy, there is this urge, you know, and there was that show or that one-hour special on HBO a few years ago. It was called uh, Talking Funny, I think, and it was Ricky Gervais, Louis C.K., Chris Rock, and Jerry Seinfeld. That that was fascinating to me. They talked about comedy and kind of breaking down jokes and, and how hard you have to work at them and everything. So we already know that people who are into comedy are into nerding about comedy. They're into nerding mm-hmm. out about jokes. And really, you know, building jokes and testing them out and seeing what's funny and everything. But then the minute you come in and say, hey, wh- while you're in the middle of your, you know, 1,000 hours of workshopping a joke, uh, you could also get the opinion of someone who you're making a joke about and maybe include that in your workshopping. The minute you do that, it's like, no, no, that's too much work. You're, you're cramping down <laughs> on my, my uh, free speech or whatever. <laughs> we, we know that they're doing this stuff already. We know that they care about their craft. Uh, why does caring about their craft not extend into the cultures that they're that they're talking about when they're writing these jokes? It just doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You want to hear uh, other other Daredevil season two examples? This one I thought was was actually 
Just what I thought was sure. funny. The the uh, one of the buildings they go to, or I think this is the building the hand guys uh, conduct their business in. It's called the uh, I gotta make sure I get this right. It's called the Yakatomi Building, mm. which I thought was really funny because the the probably the most famous Asian named building in pop culture history is the Die Hard Building, which is called Yakatomi Plaza. Okay. <laughs> like, That's so funny to like, me. Like, all you do is take one letter and change it, and because you, you have to, uh, you know, you have to remind people this is a Japanese name, uh, Japanese building, which you know doesn't make any sense, but whatever. Um, oh. And uh, oh, this one I thought was really interesting too. I, I I learned to speak Japanese when I was a kid. I'm a little rusty on it, but a lot of the Japanese that I hear spoken in that show is a little rusty or a little uh a little deliberate sounding. Uh like the you know, if you if you speak as an American using English, you you have a speed, you have a banter, right? And uh, mm-hmm. Japanese is kind of the same way. The Japanese that you use in the classroom is very deliberate. It's you know, you're learning your uh mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff. Uh mm-hmm. and the Asian actors I assume they're not uh native speakers because they are using that very deliberate kind of syllabic placing mm-hmm. uh, of their words. And so I just, you know, again, going back to the, the hiring practices and everything, these are people who look like they're from another country. So they are hired only for parts where they represent someone from another mm-hmm. country. And this is a big division mm-hmm. between Asians and Asian Americans in American right. pop culture. Not everybody mm-hmm. who looks like me with the eyes and the skin and skin color and all that stuff, not everybody who looks like me has a thick accent and learned English as mm-hmm. a second language. And mm-hmm. to be honest, uh, uh, this is something that Asian Americans have to say all the time. If I, you know, I was born and raised in the United States. If somebody dropped mm-hmm. me in Japan tomorrow, I would be lost. They, they <laughs> would have no idea how to react to me. I would have no mm-hmm. idea how to react to them. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's, Asians and Asian Americans are not the same thing, but Asian Americans who are trying to make a living acting or, you know, doing whatever, there's always that expectation of you're, you're an Asian. You, mm-hmm. so you know how to speak, you know how to speak, mm-hmm. you know, this language. Um, I, I feel bad for everybody except for John Cho, basically, in Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> I feel bad <laughs> for them trying to get mm-hmm. jobs because they go in knowing that they got to pull an accent. You know, they mm-hmm. they go in knowing that they're basic. They got to pull a bullshit accent that they maybe learned from mm-hmm. their parents or from Margaret Cho back in the day when she made fun of her parents. That's mm-hmm. we're getting those accents from the same places that everybody else is getting them from. It's not it's not natural to us. We're Americans, you know. So, mm-hmm. like I said, John Cho, he can uh, he can be Karen Gillan's love interest, which is kind of amazing. Uh, if we want to talk about where progress happens, I, mm-hmm. I never would have seen that growing up. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, Daredevil is really it's 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 hanging so hard on these tropes. And again, I'm kind of not covering a lot of the stuff that I could because Arthur Chu's piece just kind of destroys everything. He takes me <laughs> prisoner of that piece, and uh, I, everything that I could say that's smart about it, I would just be repeating him. So definitely check that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing I did want to, uh, um, and that was very true of you to bring that up, Sean, is the the whole Asian versus Amer- Asian American um, representation. Mm-hmm. And I, number one for John Cho, and I remember John Cho said this in an interview, a lot of the roles that John Cho 
has. Like if you go to his IMDb page, you will notice that a lot of the roles he has, they have white-sounding American names. So a lot yeah. of the roles have, they were never written specifically for John Cho. Yeah. I, I don't think Selfie was written specifically. I, I, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. But a lot, of the, a lot of the names are like Mick whatever, like Irish or Scottish or whatever, and yeah. then they happen yeah. to put John Cho in it. And that's a level of race bending that's cool but kind of needs to be updated. But I don't know that John Cho, except for Sulu in the Star Trek franchise, like, most mm-hmm. of the roles he gets were not originally written with his race in mind. Um, and then the other thing, too, and this blew my mind because I used to watch Heroes, um, the, the, the two Asian uh, characters that were on there, um, I think it was Matthew Oka and James Tyson Lee. Mm-hmm. When I watched <laughs> Heroes, I thought that was Heroes' actual accent. The, the, the actor who plays Hero, Matthew Oka, was – like pretty much raised in America. I think he came here when he was like three or four. He graduated from, he's like a Ivy League graduate or whatever. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the thing with heroes is like any Asian character in heroes always had an accent. There were never yep. any Asian American people nope. on that show. <laughs> and, and the same yep. with Lost, right? With Daniel Day Kim. Yep, he was absolutely. like, I just, he was, yeah, he was like the only reason he said the, one of the reasons that he got Lost is because he happened to be able to speak Korean. Not yeah. that they were like, mm-hmm oh, we're looking for Daniel Day Kim to do this role. He was like, I was just lucky enough to be able to speak Korean, but, you know, he's Korean-American. Uh, Daniel Day Kim was born here. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I just find it very interesting uh, in how we look at Asianness, how we, we're still having that disconnect mm-hmm. and saying that Asian people are American people too. Right. Know? Yeah, so that's unfortunate. Yeah. yeah, I see that, and we talked about this a couple of times in the show. I've said that before about just Asian, Asian, and Asian representation. They see um, who they consider an Asian person or Asian American person. Automatically, they don't speak English. Automatically, they fall within every single trope they've never heard, they've all, all heard of. And I say the same thing also about Latino um, characters as well, uh, or Latino yes. actors as well. They yeah. say the same thing. Yep. It's just like, oh, they don't. They obviously don't speak English for some reason. Black and white people—the only people who speak English in America—and everybody else just speaks all different languages. <laughs> like, well, I don't understand that. Yeah. It's a very, very narrow way of thinking. Very. Yeah. I yeah, and there, there's huge consequences to that kind of thing. I mean, obviously, it's a self-perpetuating cycle. We see that with every marginalized community. Um, but you know, one thing that really spoke to me, uh, one of my friends on Twitter, Jermaine Dickerson, he's on the uh, really great podcast called Blackboard. He wrote a piece all back about his love for Superman growing up, and how that led him to wake up every morning, look in the mirror, and wish he wasn't black, because that's Ooh. not because that's not the super right. Black people can't be Superman, and that's you know he's. I love his Twitter avatar right now. It's him as an adult, yeah. proud black man wearing a Superman costume and mm-hmm. you know cer- mm-hmm. certain days on Twitter you have those days on Twitter certain days I look at that and I got to shed a tear because that's that's what we're all working for right mm-hmm. is that idea that, wow. that anybody can anybody can be the hero um, and I identified with that so much and you know to be honest I, I haven't had a lot of dialogue with the black community black people in specific um, when I grew up in Hawaii there the, I'm not sure if there are black communities in Hawaii at all um, I didn't see very many growing up and, you know, being able to connect with Jermaine on that level, because I, I felt the same way. I wanted to change my last name to something whiter sounding when I was a kid, because mm. Peter Parker was Spider-Man. That was my hero. 
And you can't imagine someone with the last name Lau being Spider-Man, you know, um, mm. that and just kind of the naivete of being a kid, you know, looking at everything that you see, um, it's all, there's a whole lot of whiteness out there. It's, uh, there's not mm-hmm. a lot of room for everything else, but, but yeah, speaking again to that idea of having someone in the room who represents a marginalized community or, um, you know, the, the whole idea of, are you even going to have kids that are that are from marginalized communities, whether it be disability or, you know, uh, neuroatypicality, are they even encouraged to grow up and create culture, create mm-hmm. media that represents mm-hmm. what they see? Because you watch you watch TV, you watch everything else, and uh, it's just not a world that is for you, you know? It's... Uh, it's hard, <laughs> and I know, uh, I know I'm uh, uh, I'm preaching to the choir here, but yeah, it's yeah. Uh, I I if I do the Asian accent voice, I know it's an automatic laugh. You know, if I'm hanging out at the bar or something, and and I need attention or whatever, I can do that voice, and it's an automatic laugh. But man, it it hurts, and it's not something that I realized until recently that uh, I, I don't have to do it um, uh-huh. if I don't want to, you know, and so. Yeah, again, going back to that whole being being Asian in America, I think is, as you said, the kind of Hispanic Latino community does definitely deal with that in representation as well. But what's interesting to me is that uh, I think the major racial issue facing the Asian American community is erasure or misrepresentation. And I think that uh, obviously other marginalized communities suffer that too. But in, specifically in communicating with the black community where anti-blackness, I think, is really the, the, the larger issue. You know, but the idea that we can come together, though, even though we have, um, even though there are a lot of differences in the way that we need to approach um, the, the oppression and misrepresentation, um, I think is pretty amazing. Um, and that uh, I, <laughs> I, I think I, this is a roundabout way of saying I'm, I'm, so touched to even be here in this conversation. I really appreciate it. Oh. Well, thank you so much for, for calling, Sean. We really appreciate your insight. Can you let our, our listeners know where they can find you on, on social media? Sure, yeah. Uh, uh, I am on Twitter, at NoTotally. I do have a co-host, but I run the Twitter account. Uh, you can check out our website, NoTotally.com. If you are interested in other matters of Asian representation, I've done a, a small group of episodes where I really talk about what it's like to be Asian in America, um, some of the stuff that I've been talking about, some of the stuff that you've been talking about, not just in this episode, but previous episodes regarding uh, Asian-American um, communities and culture. So interested in that, nototally.com or at nototally on Twitter. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to listen to the rest of it with great interest. Keep it up. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Wow, that was great. I know we've talked about it before. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, definitely as African Americans, we have issues with, you know, media and television and film representations. And, you know, mm-hmm. Latinos, too, and Asians have it just as hard, if not harder, because, like like you said, it's just there's black and there's white, and that's it mm-hmm. <laughs> for some people. And mm-hmm. everything else is completely foreign, doesn't exist, not an issue. So mm-hmm. really appreciate Sean mm-hmm. calling in and chatting it up with us. Um, mm. The last few minutes, we are going to chat about uh, Superman versus Batman, which opened, had really huge numbers, um, 
past couple of weekends, despite the fact that critics pretty much universally panned it, <laughs> they all hated it. The fans loved it. And I know there was an article, um, I think it was on Variety, talking about, you know, do critics really matter at the box office? Um, and I think with this film in particular, like, these are two iconic characters. You have Batman and you have Superman, and those have huge following. So I feel like there's a certain set of people that are going to see this movie regardless of what anyone has to say. They don't care. They're not listening. They're not checking for the critics. But um, did you see, read the article? What, what do you think about uh, the disconnect between what the critics said about the film and how fans have reacted? <laughs> Rebecca, um, we'll start with you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I, it, it's just been really interesting because this movie opened last Thursday. Be, last before you Friday. begin, sorry, yeah. before you begin, I have not seen it yet, and I really want to see it, so please no spoilers. Okay. Okay. No, no, no spoilers at all. No spoilers at all. No. Um, yeah, no, it, it's really just been interesting to watch this <laughs> brawl on social media between Fans of super uh, fans of Batman versus Superman. Like, there's like there's like three factions, right? You've got movie critics, right? Then you've got the comic book fans of Batman and Superman, and then you've got the moviegoers, right? Which kind of you know there's overlap between the two. You have you know uh, comic book fans who watch the movie, and some people who just don't watch the comic, who don't read the comic books at all, but just you know go to watch the movies and the franchises, and it's just been ugly <laughs> it's been so mm. bad and i mean it's it's to the point where people are just flinging it's like mudslinging right now or i should say digital mudslinging um you've got people who love batman versus superman you know they they are very protective of these characters um and they're just like you know what you film critics suck <laughs> mm. you just kill yourself because your opinion doesn't matter and then you've got the film critics that are like, you people just have horrible taste in film and wouldn't know a good movie if it bit you. So it, there's just been like this back and forth between the two of them. And I'm going to say this. As somebody who is a comic book fan and a film critic <laughs> and kind of fall between both, I saw Batman versus Superman. Now, my personal opinion Last I checked on Rotten Tomatoes, I think aggregate for the, the, the critic consensus, it was like somewhere around like 29%. Um, oh, my gosh. It's, it's looking to be one of the lowest rate. Well, there's actually a couple of movies that's rated lower than that. But it's one of the lowest rated comic book movies as far as the critic consensus that come out in recent years. Um, and Fantastic Four, that was the year before that. Now, do I think Batman versus Superman is bad as, say, Fantastic Four? No. No. I think Fantastic Four was trash. It was not a good movie. There's just no way you could redeem that movie. Um, Batman versus Superman, I think there were problems. I think there were narrative problems. Um, and some of the acting, and, and I'm sorry, guys, I know people are huge fans of Henry Cavill. I don't know if this is the right guy for Superman. After this movie, I'm just like, maybe you guys should recast him with Matt Bomer, who was really who I wanted in the first place. But mm. You know, that, like, there's just things about Batman versus Superman that I just, I think the Batman side was solid. I was very happy with Ben Affleck. I think Ben Affleck delivered the Batman that we wanted for this movie because this is an older, more cynical Batman uh, than uh, Christian Bale's uh, interpretation. So I thought that uh, Ben Affleck was quite good. I thought the Batman side of the movie was quite good. Um, 
although it seemed like Zack Snyder just ripped off Christopher Nolan. Like, he just didn't even try to hide it. I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> the Superman side was the part that I did not like. It, it just, I don't know. I, I, I like Amy Adams as Lois Lane, but her character just really annoyed me sometimes. Um, I don't know. Like, but when it came together, eh, not so much. I think um, Gal Gadot, I was very... Um, I don't know. I, I wasn't sure how she would do as, as Wonder Woman, but I think she did. She she executed herself quite well in the movie, so I'm I'm actually very curious about how this Wonder Woman movie is going to turn out. That being said, this is also to say that a 29% and the way that people are ravaging the movie, some of the film critics are ravaging the movie, I didn't hate it that much. You know what I mean? Now, speaking as to the fact of film critics, film critics offer opinions. They, they offer informed opinions. I don't ever write a film critic, I don't ever write a film review thinking that I'm going to affect its box office. That's, that's just too much mm-hmm. ego and that's just too much mm-hmm. power and responsibility that mm-hmm. I don't want, okay? All I can do is give you my perspective. This is what I thought of the movie. This is what I saw in the movie. And for people saying mm-hmm. that uh, film critics are um, useless and film reviews are of no use, that's bullshit. And mm-hmm. I'm not just speaking of because of the fact that I'm a film critic. <laughs> I'm talking about the fact that somebody who was an aspiring, who, who wasn't even into film writing, uh, watching Siskel and Ebert definitely influenced the way that I watch movies. They made me mm-hmm. watch movies with my brain and not just with my mm-hmm. eyes. It was like, this is what you're supposed to be looking for. This is storyline and structure and acting. And it actually made me enjoy the cinematic um, experience even more. Right? So there's tons of film critics. There are some that you like. There are some you don't like. Um, I remember uh, when uh, Black Swan came out, uh, there was a, a film critic. I forget what her name was. But she wrote this fantastic deconstruction of Black Swan. And I immediately went to go see Black Swan again the next day. Mm-hmm. And I saw exactly what she was talking about. And the experience of watching Black Swan again was so much more enriching. It was like, oh, okay, I see what she's talking about. And mm-hmm. it's not just film reviews that you agree with. It, it could be film reviews that you, disrespect, that you respectfully disagree with. So I think mm-hmm. movie, moviegoers have power. They ultimately have the, the, the financial power. Um, film critics offer opinions. And I think both of us can exist in the same space. There's just no need for this. Mm-hmm. Back and forth. It's childish to me. I'm like, get a life. <laughs> it's 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 baffling. Um, and I just want to say, I love some critics. I love some criticism. I I love the art of it. I love other writers, even though I might not always agree with them. I will read reviews of movies that I love. I will read negative reviews of them. I just want to hear from other people in a respectful mm-hmm. manner. Um, and so I really, really appreciate it. I, I, I have to say that um, we've talked about, a little bit about this before, but there was maybe halfway through reading the Variety article when his, his, the writer's name is Brent Lang, he was talking about the deprofessionalism of film criticism. Okay, let's, let's, <laughs> let's talk about this for a second, Brent, because I see you're in your feelings. Let's just deal with this therapy right quick. <laughs> because, one, he was referring to the onset of bloggers. And, again, I'm a huge mm-hmm. blogger fan. And so this, quote, unquote, deprofessionalism with the idea that – and me also being a blogger and also I've, I have – I uh, manage a blog right now, and I also have written for major magazines. So, and I don't think that one is over the other. Let's just be clear on that. Um, I mm. think it's how you approach 
uh, writing is how it's, it's what you're bringing to it. For me, I don't write reviews with the intention to dissuade my readers. If what I'm saying dissuades you, that's fine, whatever, but that's never my intention. If I hate a film that you like, I'm still going to hate it, and you can still love it, and that would be cool. We can coexist. <laughs> so it happens. <laughs> so, and so that was very, again, white male angst is real, y'all. This is like the <laughs> episode. <laughs> white male angst. If you learn anything from tonight's episode of Cinema Noir, know that white male angst is real. And white male angst is so perpetuated throughout the the film criticism world. You know, people don't yes. like to say that, oh, you know, I'll say, well, I didn't like that movie, blah, blah, blah. They'll say, well, that's a good movie. I'm like, not to me, it's not. And they, they try to devalue <laughs> your opinion. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, no, but you're also, you're, you're also just saying an opinion, so I can kind of devalue you, right? Is that isn't that how it works? But they're 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 just so stuck on. Well, I'm a writer at Variety, and I know films, and I went to 20 years of film school and everything. That's all cool, very impressive. But I still don't agree with anything you just said. <laughs> so it's just like it's still it's it's just this this idea of just devaluing everybody else's opinion and. Also, you cannot approach your reviews, I, I don't think you can approach your reviews, approach your writing with, like, I'm going to make everybody hate this movie. It's Batman versus Superman. There is nothing you can do to that box office. <laughs> it is, like, kryptonite. Nothing. <laughs> there is, is, is nothing at all. I mean, like, Teflon. There's nothing you can do with it. I mean, there are movies that made a trillion dollars that I despise. Whatever. Yes. I and, I and I kind of know going in, I'm just like, this movie really sucks to me, but I'm sure it's going to make a bazillion dollars, so, like, whatever. Um, but if you think you're that influential, because, again, white male privilege is real, you think you're that influential that it's just like, if I say it, that means nobody will see it, sir, calm down. You're not that important. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, that is perfect. White male angst is so real. Yeah, I read that, and I was like, oh, he's just a little bit in his feelings. Like, that's what this is. You're in your feelings. They're not listening to Mm -hmm. you. You're in your feelings. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, (laughs) you know, everybody in their relationship with whatever film they're watching or book or whatever it is, they're going to approach it differently. So, yes, to say that, because this person says that I have to see this movie or I have to hate this movie, that's the way I'm going to feel about it. It's kind of crazy. You take their opinion, yeah. you know, you file what you need, you discard what you don't, and you move on with your life. Like, it's crazy to think that you are that powerful, that you are the end all and be all of, again, Batman versus Superman, like a billion <laughs> fans plus a billion fans in your one review. Right. It's it's just a little cocky. It's, it's really it cocky. Is. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's really crazy. I think the, the, the craziest part to me was when you had, like, you actually had DC stands, and I'm going to be very clear on this, DC stands, and when I say stands, it's people who just don't want to hear reason, um, who were actually accusing film critics of, like, being in Marvel's pocket. They were like, oh, well, obviously they're sabotaging Batman versus Superman because they're in Marvel's pockets or they're pro-Marvel, or, I mean, listen, there, I'm sure that there are film critics who are team DC and team Marvel or whatever, or team whatever you want to be, 
but this actually say that these people are in, like, I don't know that Disney is writing that many checks. And if they were, they missed me because I could have used a check is all I'm saying. Like, that okay. is, is just, okay. So I was just sort of like, mm, no, this is not. <laughs> my friend my friend actually joked with me because when I tweeted that I didn't think that, you know, I didn't think that Batman versus Superman was that bad. She was like, oh, there goes that Disney check. You know what I mean? So we joked with each other like that. So I was just like, okay, so now you're just going to insult people and just say that they're in people's pockets. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that that does not happen because we have heard cases of some critics that do foster relationships with studios and uh, directors. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying it doesn't exist, but I'm just saying with the amount of film critics that we have right now, they can't possibly be paying that many. You know what I mean? I'm sure Mm -hmm. there's a few Mm -hmm. influential ones, but yeah, I, I just thought that it was just very insulting, and I just feel like, um, and the other thing that I would like to say, too, is that for comic book stands, not fans, it's all about fans, comic book stands need to understand something. You can love a comic book to death. You can quote the number, the issue. This is a dialogue that was on page 25. Good for you, but <laughs> once it hits the screen, I have to review it. It doesn't matter how dope mm-hmm. issue 225 was of Daredevil <laughs> or whatever the hell it is. Once it hits the screen, I have to tell, I have to critique the cinematic form of that character. Okay? So mm-hmm. I have a feeling that it, what's, what's frustrating to me is that you have a lot of comic book stands who do not understand that there's a difference between loving the comic book and having to critique the on-screen representation of that comic book. Right? Christopher Nolan, the reason why the Dark Knight trilogy is so freaking dope and has been critically acclaimed. If you go on, on Rotten Tomatoes, I think the first uh, Batman Begins got like an 85. The Dark Knight was like 94. Um, the Dark Knight Returns, which even wasn't even my favorite one, still got an 84 or something like that. Hmm. I'm saying that Nolan was able to take that and give us something different, something different than Tim Burton, right? Mm-hmm. He, he approached it from a cinematic point of view. So whatever director decides to take on a, a, a comic book franchise, it's not enough for you to just be, oh, I'm a comic book fan, I'm a fanboy, I, I read all the comics, I've got the plastic mm-hmm. and the this and the that. I don't care. I want to know, mm-hmm. is this movie good? And if it doesn't, if it sucks, I'm going to tell you. That's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. Sorry, guys. <laughs> so, yep. It is what it is. All right. Yeah. Well, Unless you have anything else to add, I think we are done for the day. Um, thank you, everyone, mm-hmm. for listening. Thanks again to um, Sean for calling in and setting it up with us. And we will see you all in two weeks for our Cinema Noir Chat. Thanks, Bye. everyone. Have a good week, mm-hmm. everyone. Bye.